Welcome to Anecdotal Anatomy, the weekly podcast that explores the nooks and crannies of living in a body. Sometimes it's the two of us having a casual conversation through the filter of that day's topic, and other times we have special guests who add their voices to the chat. We are yoga educators and body workers with decades of experience as practitioners and teachers. It is with reverence and joy that we choose to take these conversations off the mat and into the microphone. Our aim is to understand the human experience through the stories our bodies hold and the stories they tell. Since having a body is the one thing we all have in common, it seems like a good place to start. We are your hosts. I am Teresa Tobin Macy. And I'm Sherry Sadoff Hank. Join us on this journey of discovery as we sleuth our way to the connections of our individual tales to the collective experience of being alive. We are back to continue our conversation about After the Because. And today we are so lucky. We have with us Christy McCracken. She's an exceptional young woman who's been living with an invisible rare disease since she was diagnosed at six years old. Now, I first met Christy several years ago, and I know that because it was a few years because before COVID quarantined us. And it was when she and her mom would take my yoga class and we connected. There was just something about this woman that I wanted to talk to her and I wanted to get to know her. And so, you know, having been diagnosed at a time when there were precious few resources, you know, both medically and in support, Christy decided to become a mentor, to become an advocate for others with rare disease and not even just her own. When we thought about doing this particular episode about the stories we tell ourselves and others after the because is what we've been calling it. We thought about the people walking around with rare, often invisible diseases, and what embodiment must feel like in a visible, and I'm doing loose quotes here, able culture. What, what can that feel like? So we are just so grateful, Christy, that you are here with us. Welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Welcome, I, I guess, Christy. <laughs> I guess we should start with letting people know what you have and what, what it's called, what, what it happens, like what is this thing that when people meet you, they would have no idea what you're carrying with you? So I have a rare metabolic disorder called ornithine transcarbamylase deficiency. Basically, it's a fancy name for my body can't break down protein, which if protein's not broken down, it turns into ammonia, which is completely toxic. There's so it includes like daily medications, a special diet, extra care when you're sick with a normal sickness. Um, it's, I mean, it's very complicated to explain to people, but it really, I mean, it's not any different than any other disease. It just, you can't see it. <laughs> what are the things you need to do to manage it so you don't feel sick or what happens when you do feel sick? You know, what it, it just, just so people have an idea as we move so, away from this part. So typically I take medications, obviously, um, and there's quite a few of them. And then I have to eat a low protein diet, which is interesting because people think that low protein means no meat. That's not true. Like proteins in everything. And I think that's the biggest misconception about my disorder, particularly. 
people think I'm a vegetarian then. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> so, and then a lot of it is like very diet based and like caloric. You have to track how much you're taking in, how much, you know, it's very like nitty gritty with the calories and all that kind of stuff. Um, the symptoms for when you are fe not feeling well, I actually often describe it as it, the phases of going through drunk. So <laughs> it's not like it's like being drunk, but you didn't drink mm -hmm. and you can't control it. So you start off getting a little like weird and, you know, fun, I guess. And then you're not feeling well, like sick, vomiting, um, headache, seizures, just very lethargic, like all of those types of things with me. I'm like, for me, it's particularly vomiting. Like I don't vomit ever except for then. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. it. That's like a telltale sign. <laughs> so I'm trying to think what else is there about it. That's different than any other disorder. I feel like they're all, they all have their little quirks. But it's key just to make sure you're getting treatment right away if you're not feeling well. Um, because the only thing that is different that is it does affect your brain. Oh. So yeah. when I was diagnosed, my brain was swollen because I had been living with it and not knowing. So, you know, I was always naturally not a very big meat eater, but they were trying to give me protein, make me feel better and making it work. So by the time I was diagnosed, I, my brain was very swollen and that's pretty much how I got diagnosed. Did they have a sense that how long you had been living with it? Because I had well, read something about, you know, that the, the, the neonatal, like when you're first born, that it's typically boys that have that, that it's more rare in, in girls to have it at birth. Um, but that it can show up at different times. Did oh, they yes. have a sense that, um, you had um, been living with this for a while? So my mom always thought something was off or different. And thankfully, like, she, I wasn't her first child. So she, she knew something was not typical baby. Um, I was very, they said colicky, but that I don't think that was true. Like it was my own body's way of getting rid of things because I couldn't speak yet. And then my mom said, as I got to be a toddler, it was like a fight for me like to eat like they couldn't get me to eat enough but i didn't have the vocabulary to under like to vocalize why initially so then i got a virus and that's literally what caused it um because anytime you have any added stress to your body like a virus or like a surgery anything like that um you can it that can increase your levels just because it's a stress on the body. So that's exactly what happened. Um, and my parents were very, very good about, like they were not taking no for an answer. They knew that something was wrong. So that happened pretty quickly. Then I was in the right place at the right time also. Um, it just happened that the person that diagnosed me had read something about it recently in a journal, like a medical journal or something, and kind of took me apart like a car, he said. <laughs> wow. And he's like, if we test this, it means it's this system. If we test this, it's this system. This is... 
And that's exactly what they did. And it was actually a very, very quick diagnosis. But later on, I found out that, so I have a rare mutation. So I didn't get it from anybody. It started with me. So like in the womb. So it's a novel mutation. So no, usually one of your parents has to give it to you. But with me, it didn't. So nobody is to blame but myself. (laughs) (laughs) There's no blame. No blame. (laughs) And that was really important when I got older um, about how I was going to grow my family also. Mm. Because without that information, it's like a guessing game. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of glad I know that. But it took a long time to figure out that I the mutation was a novel mutation. When we asked about three things that you think about embodiment, you said physical, the physical soul, mental health, and wellness. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about like what embodiment means to you in your daily life? So for me in my daily life, I said physical soul because I think with, um, with a rare disease, keeping the the soul happy content and all those things is super important because you're put through a lot physically emotionally so i feel like you have to take care of you too it's a lot um and mental health i think kind of goes right with that I've I've studied for years. I'm like, I think that every rare disease patient should have a therapist. Like, I think it should be handed to you. (laughs) Um, Because there's just ups and downs that go with that. And then the added stress of normal life, plus you're managing this chronic thing that it doesn't go away. So, and that's another stress to to your life (laughs) that you already have. And I really would say, especially now, like, I'm like, oh, yeah, because, like, having a child and a husband and everything and then having a chronic illness, like, (laughs) it gets, sometimes it gets a little hard. And having an outlet like that is super important because you don't want to hold it all in. It's not, that's not good. Do you have, you said keeping the physical soul happy and content do you have practices or like when you're thinking oh i just need to keep my soul happy and content is there something else that comes to mind something that you do i mean we were just talking about what a beautiful day it was and getting outside um that's what i do when i want to be happy and content i go outside but um how about you for me it's either going outside um with my dogs and my child (laughs) or and I do this every night I take a bath and I have an hour to myself like no matter what's going on I take a bath every night Mm. before I go to bed and like everybody knows (laughs) don't bother Christy (laughs) like like everybody it's super important to me to like take that time to decompress from the day figure out what, you know, what my plans are, what I have to do. Just be there and be present. That's my chill time. I don't know how to sit down and like do nothing. That's the hardest thing for me ever. 
Oh my gosh. You know, and so much of what you're talking about, when I read that answer about the physical soul, which number one is such a, it's not the way I would describe the physical or the soul and you put them together and that is poetry. And it describes the koshas. I mean, every layer that we went through in the in the first season, you know, that sometimes it goes into the body, but the body affects the the soul, that, that bliss centerpiece and the breath and the energy and all of those things that we talked about, that it feels like there's nothing that we can talk about that doesn't circle around to something that um, is about living in this body, you know, and the container of this body. And you said something earlier that I thought was really interesting, and I don't think a lot of people know this. Um, we know it because my husband got his rare disease from, uh, it was activated by a virus. You know, it could be activated by uh, an injection of um, an inoculation. There are certain things that can, you know, things that are dormant in the body that get activated by certain things, and we don't mm -hmm. have any control over those things. And I thought that was, you know, in the world of conscious living, we can only do so much. Um, and then something like this happens and it becomes your reality. It becomes your life. This idea of, uh, you know, we have, this is about the virus. So getting it activated by a virus that when we had someone come in to take a private yoga class and she was sick and I didn't have, I don't know why I didn't tell her to come back another time. I don't know why I invited her in that day and said, come into my home with your, with your cold and let's do some yoga. And that was the cold, that was the virus that started a whole new reality in my home. And I know that you've talked about um, not feeling, I'm gonna do the loose, loose quotes again, different, <laughs> um, that you've always known this and always lived with this. And we live in a culture that doesn't see it. You have you know, two siblings, you've got a family, you're in this world. So in terms of how you see yourself and the stories that people are telling about you, like when you said when you were a toddler and you didn't have the language to explain it, that other people were telling your story for you. They were saying, oh, you need more protein or, oh, you need this. And yet it wasn't until you were six that you actually had the clarity. So you had all of those years of after the because of these stories that were being imposed on you. So once you kind of understood it and created this um, again, loose quotes, normal in your family. Um, how did that impact the daily life in your life, in your body, in the body and container of your family? Like what changed as far as you know, or maybe stories um, your mom has told you? So for the most part, um, being flexible um, with plans and things like that, we had to be very mm. cautious also about like if someone was sick or something like that, you know, my parents had to really put their foot down and be like, no, we can't come or you can't come over. Like, because those things were very triggering for me, especially like a, like a stomach virus. Like that, that would have mm -hmm. took me out. Like I would have been in the hospital. So things like that. Um, they also did a very, very good job of making it very normal. And I have to, I don't know how, and I, give them all the credit because you know I didn't feel different than my brothers like it was just part of the normal family you know we do this this and this and I just had different food that was it like different food and medicine that's the only difference like I don't remember being treated differently or anything um I know I'm my, da my dad's girl but I'm also his only girl I mean <laughs> 
I kind of won with that. <laughs> but like we did everything that normal families do. We just did it differently. Since you felt like you you keep saying it, it was normal, we did everything the same. It was no different except for your your diet and some of your medications within your family. But what about outside the family? Like what stories or things that people say or ask you? Do are you just like oh, and you kind of shake your head like <laughs> with ah. Oh. I think my favorite one is you'll grow out of it. (laughs) And that just because I'm like a huge genetic like buff, like that's my thing. I love reading about genetics Mm -hmm. and I'm like, did you not go to class that day? Like, I don't understand how you don't understand that you can't change your genes yet. Like it's not possible. (laughs) I mean, yes, there is things that are, you know, on the, on the rise and things are looking promising, but we're not there yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and that probably, that one probably is the most hurtful, I would say, because it's like, usually the people that have said that to me actually are like close. And it's like, how many times are you going to tell me that? Like, I'm, I'm not six years old anymore. <laughs> so I don't think it's going anywhere. Hmm. I was reviewing some of this before we came on, and I even said to Teresa, I feel like so much of these stories that people tell us about ourselves are projection. They're things that make them feel better, or they're things that somehow um, make sense to them. Like, oh, of course you're going to grow out of this. It's just a, you know, a phase or whatever that is. Are there other stories that, you know, um, you had introduced us to a young woman, Claire Wine, what was her? Wineland. Wineland. And uh, she said something very interesting. And I think we can all kind of, um, I was talking to Teresa about this too. And she said that she didn't start feeling inadequate until people told her, kept saying to her, you know, oh, you poor thing. And, you know, I, you're, I'm so sorry that you have to go through this. And I said to Teresa, after my dad died, who I was very close with, people just kept coming up to me and saying, don't forget to grieve as if I would ever forget to grieve, but my grieving looked different to them than, and I said, I can't feel bad because I don't feel worse. You know, it was the first thing I thought. So are there things like that, that people put on you that, you know, have become embodied in some way? Like when she said she felt inadequate, there was a sense of embodiment of that um, until she realized it and, you know, kind of let that go. But things like that, that come up. So, I mean, I get a lot of the same responses um, that they feel bad for me or that they feel, you know, I'm so sorry. Mm -hmm. That must be so hard. But for me, like, to me, it's because they're uncomfortable. It seems like they're uncomfortable with it. Mm -hmm. I I think a lot of that stems from they don't understand it and that they're uncomfortable. And they, so it's easier to shove it under the rug if someone's not comfortable or wants to learn about it. Um, most of the people in my life that are important have taken the time to learn about it. And it's just something that's there. It's just like any other thing, it, you know, part of life. And it's interesting because most of it comes from people that are just not willing to learn about it 
or learn about something out of their little circle. And not just the people who are close to you, but somebody else who might learn that you have this rare disease. It sounds to me, and I'm, I'm giving you your after your because, but it sounds to me in my interpretation that it's more desirable for you to have people just say, hey, could you tell me more about this? I'd really like to understand it, than to say, oh, that's so bad. Oh, I, I'm so sorry you have to go through this thing. But to really just open up and have a casual conversation as we would with anything, any other thing we wanted to chat about. Correct. So I think um, if people came to me and they wanted to become more educated about it, that would be a lot more positive. I think it takes a long time to like accept this is your reality. And so we don't want other people coming up to us and kind of rehashing that. Like I, I accepted it a long time ago. I was like, oh, this is, you know, this is just it. And then when people are like, oh, I feel so bad for you. I'm like, well, why? Like, I don't understand why. Mm-hmm. Because just because it looks different doesn't mean it's any less than what you have. Mm. Wow. That's a really great comparison in um, kind of putting it into perspective is that, you know, what you have looks different, but you don't assume that other people don't, nor do you go up to them and say, oh my gosh, I feel so bad for you that you have to be stressed out today. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to talk a little bit about your advocacy, because this is something that is, I think it's a really important um, part of the process, even in one's own healing process. And I say healing, but when I say healing, I don't mean curing. I think there's a huge difference between curing something and making it go away and healing something you know is a part of you that can be best integrated harmoniously into your life. So not just your body, but all of the koshas. And so as an act of service, I want to hear a little bit about how you um, discovered that advocacy would be something that was desirable to you and something that you'd be good at. Like, What was the the driving force, motivator, and how did you get into this world of advocacy and mentorship? So I will say that I've always went to like a family conference. That was the only thing that they really had available for my disorder to even know anybody else that ever had the same thing. It's not very common. And as I got older, um, I would have mothers come up to me and ask me like a million questions and kind of like, just follow me. They were like stalking me basically (laughs) Um, because they wanted to see what their daughter or be like at that age, you know, or, their daughter could do this at that age. Um, So after that, that that was probably in my teens. So after that, I kind of was like, well, somebody has to like, kind of be the spokesperson because there's not really anybody that's talking about it. Um, And you can let doctors and medical professionals talk about it all the time, but I'm like, wouldn't it be like really a good idea to hear it from the patient? (laughs) a person that has it. 
Um, and that's what I found with the parents is that they wanted to talk directly to me. They didn't want to talk to like somebody else in, in between. They would pick my brain for hours about every little thing you can imagine. And because I was older and went through a lot of the things, I kind of had that experience. So I would say like in my 30s, I really, really became bigger in my advocacy. I had finally been like, okay, this is it. This is what I have. I either can thrive and make the most of it or I can sit in self-pity, which is not me at all, ever. I've always looked at it like, this is what you're handed in life. This is, and what I make of it is all up to me. It could be the most beautiful thing in the world, or it could be a disaster. And the choice is up to me. It's not up to anybody else. Um, So that's kind of where that came from. Um, And then after you know, there definitely are people that I've looked up to in that sense, but I try not to be exactly like them. <laughs> um, trying to think what else. So, so then I, I, started, okay. I started doing um, speeches about different topics and like as living with this. Um, so like the first one was just more or less my story. The second one, they wanted to know what it's like to transition from pediatric to adult because that's a very um tricky situation (laughs) because I know with at least for me um my parents had always been my my advocate like so if I wasn't feeling well and I wasn't making great decisions which that happens because of this disorder like you get out of it kind of Mm -hmm. so I always had somebody with me that could kind of you know, take, take the lead in case I was not up to it. Um, so as an adult, it's a little bit different because they don't care about your parent. <laughs> like they don't, they're like, oh, it doesn't matter. They, they want to talk to me and that's kind of hard to balance. So like I had to transition and learn that. So that's like one of my biggest pieces of advice is like always have somebody like with you that's an app like that's your make sure you have it on paper because when you turn 18 they're just going to be like unless you're you know have a spouse or this or that they don't it doesn't matter it's just you and it's really hard to make medicals medical decisions when you're not feeling well because it was up to me like (laughs) I'm horrible at it like I would have I'm like I'll sign myself out (laughs) What I think is really cool, though, in the advocate, having that personal advocate, whether it's your parent or someone you assign, is that they know your story. They know what is what you want and what's best for you because mm-hmm. there's an assumption that you've had this connection on that. So what you do is you minimize the after the because. You minimize the ability for someone else to influence the story. So what I loved before what you were saying was that if someone, I want people to talk to me, find out from me what the story is so that we can, you know, talk from a place that is real and not made up from one's projections. Um, Though there's an argument to say it's all projection, but you know, that's a different (laughs) podcast. 
But I think it is, it's a really important thing because what we're, we're reminding people to go to the source, to not make things up based on a fiction. Um, so this advocacy work that you're doing, I think, is, is essential to the healing process and to, to helping the medical industry and, and humanity, and you know, not to put any pressure on you, the whole industry <laughs> and humanity at large, but that we are educating, educating people how to be with humans, other humans, whether they have a disease disorder or not, you know, because yeah. like you said, it could be anything. It doesn't have to be the the disorder. It's we all have our challenges. We all have stuff we're going through. Yeah, and that's something I learned uh, very young that like everybody has something. <laughs> Just some people are better at hiding it than others, <laughs> <laughs> or, or ignoring it, not knowing. You know, yeah. we're all on different paths of our our understanding of our own selves, and this is a lot of what we're doing here. Is we're just trying to figure stuff out and and you know be provocative and get questions out there and get people to start advocating for themselves, you know, which is something that um, would be good if we did. I don't know that I would say like, I'm good at it. <laughs> I just, I'm very realistic mm -hmm. and I think approachable is what um, I've gotten feedback from. Own it, Chrissy. But, you're good at you're it. Good at it. You're good at it. <laughs> and you know, you can't, you can't help someone else unless you feel that, I mean, who am I? You can help people, but you know, yeah. you have a confidence, you have, you're approachable. All of those things are criteria that, that reveal you are good at it. And, well, thank you. And you mentioned when we were talking uh, the other night in preparation, how much social media was a huge shift in community building and support, which um, social media, either people love it or hate it, it's good or bad. <laughs> yeah. But I was really um, interested when you had mentioned that it was a, a, a great way for advocacy and community building and support. Do you have like specific um, Facebook pages or groups uh, where you are able to go in and mentor? Do you do that personally or throughout different um, social media type avenues? A lot of times it's personally um, because usually if somebody gets like a child gets diagnosed or something, they find it on Facebook because there's a group for it. Um, and then they want to talk to usually one of the older patients and they tend to reach out directly. Okay. If not, um, the foundation for my disorder, that's what I'm, consider a patient mentor so they will give them my contact um for they can if they want to they can contact me mm -hmm. and i just made myself available for that so that's kind of how they can get in touch with me um but like it's a small community <laughs> <laughs> so it's like everybody knows everybody so if there's a newbie like we just kind of like Show them the ropes, like <laughs> bring them in, bring them in for the hug. Yeah. <laughs> so then, when people reach out, it's generally the parent, but it sounds like you may perhaps you mentor children. Yes. So I would say like um, adolescents, like mm -hmm. usually when you know when they have an idea of what's going on with themselves, um, a little hard with babies and things like that. They don't really understand, but. Like I said before, 
my they would just stalk me mothers and fathers um and i've made a lot of friends like that are younger than me now because they were like teenagers and i was like an you know older than them and kind of like already going through it and they would just kind of naturally connect it's a natural it's a natural connection i would say which mm-hmm. is interesting because it's somebody you've never met before usually and then you put them all together and it's like it's like they've known each other for years when, when in the absence of a community of people who understand what you're going through and then all of a sudden you're with people who get you who you don't have to explain it to who you can just be yourself I mean, that's got to be a liberating experience. Again, I mean, I'm constantly after the becausing. You know, here we go. That must be what it is. <laughs> it's um, definitely liberating. And it's really nice to know because I grew up in an age when they didn't have social media. Mm-hmm. So it was really difficult because I didn't know anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had nothing to really even compare it to or, oh, you know, this is possible or that's possible. I just kind of, it was unknown. I just kind of kept going and, you know, we'll figure it out. Like, (laughs) what what are some of the other challenges? You know, we talked a little bit about the orphan drugs and about funding and things like that. Like what, what is that? So that people understand, you know, when we are in, when we're digging into our pockets and wanting to give a philanthropy, we want to give to a, a cause or to something. We all know about, you know, the diabetes, you know, association. We know about Lust Garden for Pancreatic Cancer. And these are all important, big, you know, yeah. um, organizations that are very well funded. But so I'm going to just dot 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 ellipsis you there so rare disease in general is a very smaller community um just has always been and then um, because of that because of the pool is essentially smaller um it makes it difficult to get access to grants and things like that for research mm-hmm. because why are they going to spend it on a like five people rather than 20 like it just i mean i get it but to me it's like people are people why are we not doing it evenly and with that i don't think they take into consideration that the or that most of these disorders have really strange drugs that are orphan drugs and can you explain what that is so an orphan drug an orphan drug is any drug that basically is used for a rare disease or that doesn't have a generic version Hmm. so in my case like i don't have the option to shop around to find the best price for um a medication like this is my medication to stay alive it's either take it and find a way to figure it out how to get it and pay for it or don't take it and roll the dice. There's no other option. And even the ones that, you know, are a little more common, but still not a regular drug. I mean, they're not like you can go to a local pharmacy and get it. Like they're all specialty drugs. Mm -hmm. They take, they take time to make, they take time to, they ship them to you. Like it's not, (laughs) it's not like, a normal pill. <laughs> and I think that's like the biggest frustration is that like, I just, 
nothing is in pill form ever. Like none of these medications are like pills. I swear. <laughs> I'm like we can't figure out how to put it together and put it in. Like that would be the greatest thing ever. What is the delivery system then if it's not a so, pill? So one's a powder, mm -hmm. one's a liquid that I mix with something because it tastes like battery acid. And another is, it's oil-based, but it doesn't have a taste. Mm -hmm. So you, you just put it, you, on that one, like I just put it in my mouth and then take a sip of whatever I'm drinking. Mm -hmm. And then, but the battery acid one I've been taking since I was six years old. And <laughs> people are like, you have, a, you have a tough stomach. I'm like, I know. <laughs> it doesn't taste like lemonade now? To me, like, I don't even, it doesn't even phase me. I'm pretty good about medications and stuff now because of that. <laughs> Anything's better than that one. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, like when people are like, oh, like I had to take this because I was sick. I'm like, and like, <laughs> whoop de doo Like that's nothing. What are some of the other things that you do? Some practices. Um, Sherry mentioned that she met you and your mom in a yoga class. So does yoga and meditation fit into your daily practices of on your embodiment journey? And um, besides your bath, of course, which I think <laughs> I think that practice fits in beautifully. And I love that one. <laughs> um, so, yeah, like yoga and meditation are definitely a part of my routine. Um, I wouldn't say it's daily. It's more like once, not once two to three times a week. Um, mm. I have to give myself time to recover too and make sure I put back the caloric intake that I may have burned. Mm -hmm. So, and that's, you know, under my, my doctor's supervision. So that's what she is comfortable with and I'm not gonna rock the boat there. But other than that, I do yoga meditation. I really enjoy anything in the summer. Mm, me too. <laughs> I love like the summer. I like I hate the cold. <laughs> I obviously in anything with my daughter is pretty much where you'll find me. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. um, that's probably the most important thing now to me. But I mean, besides yoga and meditation, I would say I like podcasts too, especially like. Um, like thought provoking ones, mm -hmm. especially at night. Like I usually listen to it before I go to bed. I like things that make you think a little differently or deeper or have a different perspective. Would you recommend something to a listener who's like, ooh, I want to know what Christy's listening to? <laughs> Besides anecdotal anatomy, of course. <laughs> so I listen to, um, that lately I've been listening to, um, it's by Justin Baldoni and it's called Man Enough. Hmm. And it's looking at what society has said it means to be a man. It's really interesting. And they have on different guests and it's like the perspective of like how it's kind, it reminds me of this, <laughs> but oh. only like the gender of being a man, like society says you should be this and not cry and do this and that's kind of what they break down and they're like no 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 <laughs> like boys have emotions <laughs> thank goodness 
Yeah. Um, so it's very interesting. I listen to that. Um, I listen to all different. I listen to medical ones because I'm a medical junkie. <laughs> um, I listen to a lot of, a few of the like organizations for certain disorders I listen to. Um, remember the girls has one that's pretty awesome. I'm on one of them. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and you are creating one too. So this is a lot yes. of research that you're doing, listening to, you know, as you move into, uh, why don't you tell the listeners what the name of your new podcast or your podcast is going to be and what it is that you would like your listeners to, what the message is and what you'd like your listeners to take away. So the podcast is coming. It's called Chronically Christy. <laughs> um, the overall message, I just, we're taking a look at different perspectives of rare disease and patients and different people that are involved in that circle. Um, and I think we're just going to like talk about like the realness of it, the ins and outs. I, I've often said that there's a lot of podcasts that they always have like doctors or they're Mm -hmm. not going straight to where like, the patient is the one experiencing it. And I think those stories should be told. Um, we all have different, and it's interesting because we all have different, even the patients, our stories are not like each other, like mine's not like anybody else's. And that's really interesting. Even just that, like I have two girls that are kind of like my right hand man, like that, that they help me out a lot. Um, and, but our stories are so different. One is, you know, married, but chose not to have any children. And she has the same disorder as me. The other is younger and, you know, ha- totally different, you know, can do more exercise and not lose weight. That's not me. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, it's very interesting to like just look at things differently a different perspective Mm. i think it is important to hear patients to hear it from the people who are experiencing it and i love that you're kind of giving us that umbrella that each one of the stories you know that are so so different even though you're all in the same rare disease community Um, because i think we often fall into the trap when people like, okay, so everybody has this, therefore they must be the same. And to be able to highlight the different perspectives and the different views and how people, um, like you said, navigate and make choices throughout their life um, is the same as putting together, uh, you know, Sherry and I in a group of yogis. We have that thing in common, <laughs> but that doesn't mean that our lives follow the same um, the same trail. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, and I guess that leads us into your TED Talk, which is a question we always like to ask our guests. Um, what would your t- TED Talk be? And you answered, living a life you are proud of. I'm wondering if you have a couple of lines or a few minutes that you could give us a sneak peek into what that TED talk would sound like. So living a life you're proud of. um, I believe that just because you have a chronic illness doesn't mean you can't have a beautiful life. It may look different, 
but it's the same destination. It's just how you're getting there. Um, and I kind of feel like this has been a big part of my life all my life. Um, I've always accomplished the same things as other people, but I would go about it different ways. So my life doesn't look technically different from the outside, but if you knew how I got there, it would make you look at it a little different. And that I'm not, I'm super proud of. I'm like, that is the part that makes me the most proud that it doesn't matter how you get there as long as you get there. Hmm. And I don't like people telling me that I have to do it a certain way. <laughs> if when you get to wherever, you know, we are on the journey, you get to a certain point at a crossroads and you're looking at your life and what would be something, you know, maybe besides your daughter, who I know is, you know, paramount, <laughs> yes. um, something that you are, if you've already done it or you can declare it now, something that you're going to do that would make you feel extremely proud of the life that you know this path that you've taken with all of the challenges with all of the stories with all of the stuff um what would be the thing that makes you feel most proud probably just being a mentor for the younger generation in judaism we have a, a saying it's the one thing like in the liturgy that i actually respond to and it's called lador vador which means from one generation to the next and that is the thing that links us. That is the thing that, you know, what you're doing as a mentor is you are paying it forward. You are giving to the next generation so that they can then give to the next generation there. And what a, I have chills all up and down my arms right now. And I just feel like the work you're doing is, is so important. And, you know, without um, feeling uh, like not being patronizing in any way, but I am so proud also and feel that the work that, you know, this is awesome thank you yeah. it's a lot to juggle but <laughs> <laughs> I, I figure it out <laughs> yes so that is a great segue um can you tell us some of the organizations or groups that you would like to share with our listeners um anything that you might want to promote or direct us toward to learn more to um you know just be involved. So I highly encourage people to check out um, National Organization for Rare Diseases. Um, they do have a website. Um, it's nord.com, I think. Okay. <laughs> we'll put it all in the show notes. So if people um, want to give, there'll be links. So that organization helps all rare diseases, not just one in particular. Mm. Um, that's actually, I have like one of my favorites because they really help um with medication costs and things like that um and they're not they're not like a big one that people know of unless they have a rare disease <laughs> <laughs> also the national urea cycle disorder foundation um which is that's my particular foundation for my disorder and that is www.nucdf.com and Remember the Girls, which is um, a group dedicated to research and educational info for X-linked disorders for women. Can you, can you um, 
help us understand a little bit more about X-Link disorders? So, yeah, so uh, everybody is born, um, depending on if you're a male or female, women have two X's, boys have one X. Um, so the defect in, is on the X chromosome. So X-linked means that it's on, that's kind of how they, that's what they call it because it's on the X chromosome. Now, depending on what your disorder is, where on that chromosome, that's a whole different ballgame. <laughs> as we're but, winding up, as we are kind of closing this out, um, we've, we've covered everything, but I just want to know when is your bod podcast coming out so that we can tune in? Should be out by the end of the month. <laughs> and oh. right now we're in April of 2022. So yes. at the end of April 2022, find Chronically Christy and and share it you know click the links and the follows and the shares and all of the good stuff because this is work we need to to get out into the world and the messaging is so you know it's all of us you know we we talk about connecting the individual stories to the collective we are the collective and we are made up of all of us and we are everything so thank you christy oh, you're welcome <laughs> thank you it was so nice talking to you tonight thank you for being here Oh, no problem. <laughs> and join us next time when we talk about the value of practice and how our practices can help in this journey of embodiment. Until next time, I'm Teresa Tobin Macy. I'm Sherry Sadoff Hank. Thank you for joining us today. If you like what you heard, please click the like and follow buttons and give us a five star rating wherever you listen. These ratings help our Grassroots podcast to become more visible to more people, so we can include more stories. Written reviews are like stars on steroids. If you are so moved, please write a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We are just getting started. So if there's something you'd like us to cover, please email us at anecdotalanatomy at gmail.com. Tell us your stories. We'd like to thank our editor, Judith George, Keith Kenny for our music, and Cindy Fatsis for our photos.